I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch says, yes, literally all men. TV shows. <laughs> we love to watch television. Well, this sort of blurs the line because it's a TV movie put into seasons as a TV show, and they're only an hour long. And they would just call and... it an anthology horror show now. And it blurs the line because it's only available in SD. It's a little blurry <laughs> compared to the HD. The higher yeah. up letters you go. Back to the beginning of the alphabet, the better the resolution. Once we get to AD, it's going to be amazing. <laughs> it's going to be all definition. awesome dicks is what the format is called. And then after that, we will have a nuclear and, yeah, and beautiful uh, 256K resolution. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so this is a surprise episode probably for you guys. Uh, when we went and looked at the calendar after we did our poll on our Joe Dante summer, we were like, hey, what's this? What's this little uh, extra Tuesday hanging around right in the smack dab end of July? Uh, I don't know why I made myself giggle for saying smack dab and realizing it didn't apply at all, but just I just kept going. So we were like, well, what should we do? Should we do another Joe Dante movie? And then we're like, you know, we just did four. Almost every Joe Dante movie we have an idea for at some point. So I don't know if just like throwing out like Small Soldiers or, you know, Hollywood Boulevard or one of those movies is a good way to just kind of end it. And the episode I want to maybe – we won't maybe want to add that to something else or end the month. So then I was like, you know, he – Joe Dante has an interesting career because he's done a lot of TV stuff. He's done TV movies. He's – I was looking. He's directed like a million episodes of Hawaii Five O, the new CBS series. He, he's, you know, he needs a paycheck, and his few horror movies he's paid, made in recent years have not done well. Barry yeah. Axe, notably. Terrible. It's still like that. That I, I may have. So we're actually recording this one first. I may have already talked about that movie, but it's a piece of garbage. <laughs> um, and also, I think it's kind of a harsh implication that Joe Dante hasn't managed his finances well from Peter. But, you know, if he's directing episodes of Hawaii Five O and the shoe fits, I think, um, you know, I would never say that he needs it for a paycheck just to pay the rent and feed his kids. But, you know, Peter said it. So, it's out there. <laughs> so, so what I Peter's saying is that, that Joe Dante hates the show Hawaii Five O, but in order to pay medical bills he is <laughs> For, doing it i think joe dante likes the idea of going to hawaii and to be paid for it well interesting um, <laughs> because that's uh, he's why they shoot that's you know that's why they made a hawaii Five O show and not another like that's why they didn't make another chips show i guess they made a movie of that but like they made a hawaii <laughs> yeah, try to find an example that they have not remade yeah it's it's tough I thought they made a Hawaii Five-O show because the producers are like, I want to live in Hawaii for half the year. 
Yeah, that was that was why loss got really bad. <laughs> like, we're not leaving. We're dragging bro. this baby right out. I don't know the others again. Yeah, so uh, we decided. So we we're looking. He has a kind of this amazing uh, career in TV as well. Some highs, some lows. And he directed uh, two movies or TV movies, two anthology episodes of uh, the TV show Masters of Horror, which was an anthology show that uh, was on Showtime for two years in like the 2003, 2004, 2005. Um, So we decided for kind of our bonus episode, why don't we do his – he did two episodes – why don't we cover those? And he kind of did the episode that made the series popular for a short period of time. Like the the episode in all of – in all the two years of Masters of Horror that like people remember and it may be even removed from the Masters of Horror connotation at this point is the one that Joe Dante remembered. And it also I remember because I watched it when it aired. Uh, we'll get into this in se- just a second more. But Peter, have you, had you ever seen these two before? Um, I had seen, yes, I, I, I'd seen both of them before. I owned the, okay. I owned Masters of Horror season one and then a few selections from season two because uh, I didn't have Showtime. I still don't have Showtime. And so I bought season one to watch it for the first time. And then when season two came around, I was like, I'm just going to go off of uh, the people's favorites because the directors you like. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty mixed bag of a show and it's a show that's endlessly fascinating for that reason like they gave a lot of these guys the same budget and it's big leeway yeah and they let them do whatever the fuck they want and some directors make gold out of it and some directors you're like oh you um you didn't come up with anything you just really you just couldn't say no to the offer okay and yeah, I understand. Peter thinks that swing. everyone really needs the paychecks. Everyone this does is, need the paychecks. This is mostly a this is mostly a financial advice podcast <laughs> at this point. What should horror directors do? Hey, John Carpenter, you just you're fine. Sit at home, play Shadow the Hedgehog all day. <laughs> uh, that's like a. It's bad to do a running gag that is not a running gag on the podcast, but just between us in text conversations about how much John Carpenter loves uh, Sonic the Hedgehog. But look it up. <laughs> uh, if you don't know, go look up how much John Carpenter loves uh, Shadow and Sonic and all of the gang he, at it's Hedgehog It's not a King. joke. He loves joke. the shit out of them. So, yeah. So, they gave these these kind of decent-sized budgets and it was kind of a big deal. And Homecoming, the Joe Dante episode was both uh, – again, I, I watched it when it aired. I was really excited about it. And it was like the one that got a lot of press. And it was also like joe dante's back baby back into his horror roots doing this like his kind of like comedy social satire horror movie and one thing too like looking at the other reason we wanted to do it is looking at the like selections that we did for joe dante month it's funny joe dante is kind of i feel like primarily known as a horror director but that's not really most of the movies that we covered because he 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 was never – I mean, he was never really a straight horror movie director. Like, his first couple movies where he, like, co-directed Rock and Roll High School and Hollywood Boulevard, like, they were just kind of low-budget Roger Corman, you know, movies. That was him getting experience in the field. I think people think nowadays that, like, you can go from the Colin Trevorrow route where you're like – well, you only need to make one indie movie and then you're good. Like, that's not how it usually works, especially if you're a woman or a person of color. And it's definitely not how, yeah. how this works. And, you know, and most of most of his contemporaries kind of stuck for the most part to 
horror movies. You look at like Stuart Gordon, John Carpenter, Wes Craven, like there are exceptions in those lists, but you know, Joe Dante always had more of like a manic energy to him. Uh, and he brought that whether he was doing Gremlins or The Howling or whether he was doing Small Soldiers and Looney Tunes and The Burbs and all the other stuff. So it just felt like horror was always another portion of his bag, which uh, is bag of tricks that he could bring out. Um, yes. As opposed to like the specific genre that he worked in and is known for. But having said that, he did make some pretty iconic horror movies. While I guarantee stuff like The Howling and Piranha and other items like that are in our future, uh, to kind of end the month on a kind of a quickie episode, it felt like doing – you know, we've never really done a TV show besides – actually, we did. We talked about doing uh, Christmas horror like TV show, but I guess we never did it. We've done this podcast for so long that I've forgotten what we have and haven't done. But this seemed like a good time to talk about something that we have spoken about before, which was Masters of Horror, and, and a way to cover uh, some of John Joe Dante's other directorial efforts that he has done quite a bit of. So, so Peter, without further ado, I think we're actually going to start with talking about uh, his second entry for Masters of Horror Season 2, which was uh, The Screwfly Solution. And then kind of move into the main piece, the kind of still iconic episode, I think. Iconic might be a little far removed at this point, but it's, it's, it is one of the, uh, the high marks of Masters of Horror in terms of like the episodes people remember from the yeah. series. And it was like it was released on DVD soon after it got, you know, people talking. It was – I liked Dreams of a Witch House too, but no one like fucking remembers that that exists. Dreams like, of a Witch House is great. Incident on and off a mountain road is so awesome as a lean, mean horror movie. If you remember Masters of Horror – and you're not like one of us, like an obsessive uh, horror director um, completionist. You probably remember Homecoming. So it makes sense to probably devote most of the episode. Plus, I think it's just more interesting to talk about uh, than the Screwfly Solution. Although I like the Screwfly Solution conceptually. One thing that happened a lot with, um, I think, Masters of Horror, but also also like anthology TV horror in general, like even like the, the Showtime Outer Limits – uh, is that a lot of good concepts, but sometimes done in by the shitty late 90s, early 2000s special effects and then, like, not being able to hire good actors Yeah, for it. yeah. <clears throat> All of them kind of have either good actors slumming it and knowing they're slumming it because this was before TV became very prestige and... Uh, it was on or, the precipice of it, like it's yes. like it's post Sopranos and stuff, but it it is but still Sopranos like was, that was that was basically HBO was the exception of the rule for years. Like even Showtime looked like shit for years. Like Dexter was also the exception of the rule that Showtime was was made you know cheesy cheap looking shows. Yeah. No, you're right. Like it it took, and this was kind of Showtime's even just one of their first forays into, hey, what if we did original programming and stop showing movies like the HBO guys did? Let's get on some of that that, uh, that Oz money, <laughs> that John from <laughs> Cincinnati money. Um, so Masters of Horror was Mick Garris is is production baby, and he Critters oversaw four screenwriter episode. Mick Garris baby. He is. He was the master of horror. When you write Critters 4, you're at the top of the heap. He is 
Okay, so let's. I'll start with the nice stuff. <laughs> so nice. He has a great podcast where he interviews horror legends. He's gotten some great, really raw moments because he knows everybody because and everybody likes him because he's a very nice person. He's sort of a hack in terms of his creative work. He, I don't think he's a good director. Sleepwalkers is the best thing he's made, maybe. And Sleepwalkers yeah. is still a terrible movie, but it's like a fun, bad movie. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's at least like pulpy, fun, bad in a way that is compelling as opposed to like, he worked on The Stand and The Shining miniseries and <clears throat> he's... British Four! His willingness to compromise on budgets and his willing to compromise on vision for other people is usually a big old fucking liability. But in this, it's an asset because he just bowed down, got these guys whatever, you know, the budget that they needed for the episode that Showtime was willing to pay and let them do whatever the fuck they wanted as long as they were delivering dailies on time. And he doesn't talk shit about any of the directors. So I assume all of his relationships with these directors has gone smoothly. This is a low budget show that everybody was basically making a movie every week. And it's... It looks like a TV movie from the early 2000s. Uh, famously, the late 90s and early 2000s are almost the least kind in retrospect to low-budget productions because it was the age where everyone's like, yeah, CGI. CGI can make everything magic. And so, you know, if this was made in the 80s, you probably would have either like – probably had people try to figure out more creative stuff to figure out how they didn't have to show – they would have to work with limitations, which sometimes brings out some more creative decisions, or they would be using some practical effects. So, so you have something like uh, Homecoming, which looks great because you got zombie stuff, you got blood stuff, and then you got something like the Screwfly Solution, which looks like garbage for the most part for all the special effects. And in general, Masters of Horror leaned towards garbage when it came to that sort of stuff. I try not to be uh, too much of like a special effects purist, but. One one easy way to kind of take away the horror of a situation is to make something look super goofy. And when you use bad special effects and you're trying to scare people, those things can be antithetical to each other and, and take away from what you're trying to do. And you really sometimes have to like, okay, I get it. I know what they're trying to do. Let me picture this, but like actually good and scary. And Master Force suffered from that. So, yes. But again, they were they were not unique into everyone going like computers could do everything. <laughs> and I'm generally, by the way, I'm generally a fan of Masters of Horror, but you have to take it with a little bit of salt. This is not going to look like True Detective or Westworld, definitely not Westworld. Now Prestige TV just looks movie quality, if not better. Yeah. Game it's, of Thrones. It's a lot of digital like, cam. Yeah. Yes, Game of Thrones looks like as good as Lord of the Rings ever looked. Which is crazy. Yeah. It doesn't, have the, it doesn't have the same level of craftsmanship in terms of like armor and specific details and scenes. But like the they set up shots with specific color and they actually had time to like uh, manage the lighting. Whereas in Screwfy Solution, my biggest problem with it is the look of it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's there's so, no it's lighting effect. Like it's such an ugly and sweaty Movie. So let's let's quickly do the recap of Scro- the handheld stuff is is bad. Do you want me to do the recap of this or do you want me to do Homecoming? I'll just I'll do Screwfly Solution quick. Sure. So, uh, so Screwfly Solution. Um, it's based on a book that I'm actually kind of interested in reading because I, I I like a lot of the ideas presented. But it's basically um, about uh, how th- these men start killing women 
they find out that it is something – it's an infection. It's an infection-borne disease that's causing men to have violent urges towards the women in their life. And instead of like reckoning with that or doing what Jason Priestley's character – he's a family man. He has kids. He has daughter. His wife is like like chemical castration because it's the only way to, to solve it. There's a couple things that happen, which I think is very interesting to talk about. The first thing is that obviously – all the people in charge of stopping uh, a disease that affects men from killing women are also men. So no solution is – they're like, what? we don't need to do that. I'm perfectly capable of not killing my wife. And then on top of that, it is instead of like reckoning with where these misogynistic urges come from or the fact that, hey, people are snapping and just violently murdering women, it is also then about how they find ways to justify it. It's actually what God wants. And so there's like a cult that rises up through that. So essentially – and then on top of that, even later on, like culture just adapts where actually it's women who are suffering for the fact that men are violent, are um, capable of murdering at any time. The culture as a whole can't just keep putting men in prison because it's too many. And so the culture just kind of adapts around the fact that men are violent psychopaths who could kill women at any time. So like – Oh yeah, no. Like we have, we have, um, uh, we have men planes and we have women planes. And if you get on a men plane because you need to make your flight, you're risking someone f- flipping out on you and murdering you. And there's nothing we're going to do about it. So, like the onus is on women to figure out how to avoid the fact that men are violent psychopaths, which sounds kind of familiar if you're paying attention <laughs> to anything's going on. So at the end of the movie is obviously. Um, uh, so Jason Priestley's character eventually tries to, uh, is infected just like everyone else because again all the people that could have stopped it are the same people who were causing the violence. And that sounds familiar. That one's also. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, so at the end though, it turns out so uh, she kind of goes in hiding. His wife, his daughter's killed. Uh, and uh, eventually she realizes that it's actually like an alien's plan to kill the to destroy the human race like they do with screw flies where they basically make them overly aggressive and so they kill off part of the population uh, and that is what aliens have done to men because it wasn't it was pretty easy to turn that switch yeah so that's so conceptually, Everything I just described is not only relevant, but like super interesting. And as I read a little bit about the book and doing some research for this, like it is about how like toxic, how toxic men are both like protecting other toxic men and the way that toxic men justify toxic and violent men justify all their violence about uh, towards women uh, on the women themselves. It's the, well, like, I wish you wouldn't make me do this, like type, like domestic abuse thing, which uh, written in the 70s, uh, sadly super relevant to this day. It made me kind of want to seek out the book. So from a conceptual level, it's great. From an execution level, it essentially is almost all the way terrible from the way it looks, from the acting to the way it clearly has like no budget and then constantly has it, – it has that terrible problem of like – guys in a broom closet pretending it's the pentagon yes and like and like adding everything else to it it just so but it's it's watchable enough and the ideas presented are so um well communicated as to what's going on and why 
that basically this epidemic was was destined to be unstoppable because all the triggers of power were the same people that were causing the epidemic. It's still like I still enjoy it. It's not bad. It's just it is it is Joe Dante doing a great job with what he has, which is almost nothing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the concept is obviously from a, uh, a short story a, by written by a uh, woman psychologist uh, who's interested, obviously, in gender issues. And she is – hold on. I have the name here. We got to get the name. Wikipedia did not have that right. It was uh, – it had a, there's a fake name and then it became, and it's Alice something. Okay. Because I thought it was just based on a book. Oh no, Al right. Sheldon. Well, oh, so it's based on a oh, short story by uh, Rakuna yeah. Sheldon, which yeah. is a pen name for someone named Alice Sheldon, um, who's uh, also wrote under a nom de plume James Ch- Tiptree Jr. Um, basically, it was a, a woman psychologist who had a lot of interest in how to make genre works um, speak to different uh, aspects of feminism and psychological issues for society. Mm-hmm. And this is one of her most famous works, partially because of this Masters of Horror episode, which is, you know, even if you hate this episode and you like the original work, this movie show made people read the original work. But it, yes, the budget is extremely limited, which uh, I think shows itself most in a obviously the photography, but whatever, in the fact that they have limited takes, limited takes with uh, a really bad sense of blocking and framing and staging. So like there's scenes they're just like, I don't know what's supposed to be happening. The entire strip club attack scene where um, one of the soldier so basically a religious guy attacks a stripper but doesn't successfully kill her and then a soldier stands and then he up gets and, killed and then another and one like it's because it's, it's an infectious disease so then he is like i also am violent now against women because i yes. have been touched by the lord and then he finishes you know finishes the the, the murderer which is um a really it, it would be a really effective terrifying scene but it looks like Joe, garbage in the act. It looks like garbage and the actors are just not – it's not well rehearsed. And they're amateur actors, not well rehearsed. Which it, And so it ends up looking like softcore porn that turned violent. Yeah. And this also has the problem of like a global epidemic movie. That's that's can be hard to do on a movie's budget to like really God, communicate. The stand looks like shit after yeah. the first episode. The first episode looks pretty good and then they blew through their budget real quick. So it has a lot of people, again, just like in a better of like, things are getting crazy out there. So like the scale is never communicated well and it's never presented well. There are some like the opening scene where the the friendly neighbor is just whistling away like while mopping up the blood of like he killed his mom. Like that's very well shot and like feels like a real big neighborhood. And then everything else gets more and more condensed until like – it, do, it feels claustrophobic, but not in, like, a purposeful claustrophobia <laughs> way. It's just like, guys, you couldn't find – like, my work has bigger conference rooms. Like, what yeah, is happening? Like, they did – like, it, it feels claustrophobic in the sense that they're like, we literally can't afford a wide-angle lens. Yeah. It's like Ed Wood, like, built the set and they're just like, I don't know. This is the room we have because that one Mormon church is putting up the money. So, yeah. make everything out of this one room. 
So what I'll say about it is, like you said at the beginning, the concept of it is so compelling. And the concept, I guess, in summary would be like men are afraid that women will laugh at them, but women are afraid men will kill them. Yep. It's it's that that feminist quote and it's it's but it's blown up to a yes, all men level where it's like this. Even if you think that you're, you know, uh, a sane dude who treats his wife well, treats your wife with respect. You have a moral compass and you, when you come home from a long business trip, you fuck your wife good. Like you do all the things you're supposed to do to keep your wife happy. And also like, to keep oh. Showtime happy by really <laughs> fucking your wife good. Because <laughs> why else is it on Showtime if we don't get some nudity? And you do all the, the stuff that society says men is, are supposed to do. And the truth is you could do all the stuff that you could be a, a supplier for the family. You can be a supplier with a moral conscience. You can be a good lover. You could be all that stuff that that happens. You really hit but this still good be lover section. But, st- but still be a toxic man. Yeah, true. Well, and, and that's because he – well, he suggests ways to, to stop the infection, which is chemical castration for men. It's that like – it's that thing about like men protect men, right? Like – they all just are like, here's what we should do. And everyone's like, well, no, we're not going to do that. I'm not going to have my manhood taken away just because I could literally murder women on the drop of a hat. And this would prevent like both women I don't know and women I care about from getting murdered. But that uh, at the risk of me being less of a person, I don't think so, but oh. And Jason Presley's like, this is so frustrating. I'm going to go home and be frustrated. It's like the reaction of like, hey – Everyone is going to kill all the women in the world based on all the stuff you're studying. And you're just like, ah, I wish they would have listened to me down at the office. Like, he, <laughs> he too is not willing to take the steps that he knows is necessary because he is, like, tacitly protecting the fact that, well, yeah, I get it. <laughs> you know, I get it. Like, I get it. Like, they're making the wrong decision. But I understand. I'm just going to – I'm going to send my loved ones away. While I figure out a way to stop it without having to uh, confront any stronger any of the the men in power, so this is one of the reasons that I, I'm a little defensive of the sh- of this episode is because it's just an episode of a show. It's only an hour long, and it was on TV. It didn't go to theaters or whatever. It's sort of it's sort of humble in that way. So I'm a little bit more defensive of it than I would be a movie like this concept at this budget would not have survived an extra 30 minutes. It barely survives its current runtime. No, but I, I think it would have survived a better budget. Better a better actors. budget. Yeah. Better, like, more time. Someone should still okay, make yes. this. Yes. But my point is this. Because of all that, they still needed Jason Priestley to be the lead. And he's not very good. <laughs> and he's not in it for much. He's not in it for much, but he's the lead of the movie. And I think what's interesting about that is that the, it goes to the point I was saying. It's not a, you know, not all men scribe. It's it's not Joe Dante say, well, we just need good men to get in there. Jason Priestley is supposed to be a good husband and he falls prey to that violence against women just as easily as anybody else does. Yep. And he murders his own daughter in it after being, you know, the semi-hero of the piece. Like the only man that's exempt from this is Elliot Gold and that's because Elliot Gold is gay. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of a weird well, like the character is gay. Elliot Gold is yeah. not gay. You know what I mean? I yeah. don't know the character name because it's irrelevant. Um but the fun thing about it about all that, and I don't know if you really caught this or this is the way you saw it, there's a epidemiologist who's friends with the main couple. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, she that her her dying is horrific. It is horrific, and they do it off screen, which is I think the best way to handle it because we Joe Dante eventually understood he was like we don't need to we don't need to get some salacious elements out of this death. This is supposed to be a horrific tragedy. She's trying to the, stop the, the shit. and the movie follows her for a good like fifteen minutes. And I think you you pointing that out is really great because I think that that backs up what I'm about to say. She comes in a staunch feminist <laughs> into the movie in a way that even the main character is like, not all men, like the one, the, the, the mom in the character, the mom lead character is like, not all men are like that. That's some, that's some bullshit. You can't say men are all like this. And then the epidemiologist goes on, the feminist epidemiologist goes on to just prove herself to be right time and time again, even though at first it seems like she's going to be like in any other horror movie, she would be the crazy, you know, ex hippie feminist. Instead, she is a hundred percent right. Everything she says is correct. And she even marks off a little bit of time to say, look at this Islamophobia that you have in your own house against yep. Muslims or yeah, that, generally people. That's, from the that's othering people. Like yes. you are, you are accepting a level of othering which can easily be like you're an other to someone too. Like your house is full of others. Yes. And you – that allows you to hide from your own hypocrisies, your own misogynies, your own way that you protect misogyny in your in your everyday life and, and hypocrisy in your everyday life. And she's – so she's like right, right off the bat. And I wasn't sure if the movie was making fun of her for defending Muslims like because of the t- the, the year that this was made. But it's not. She's the she is the most morally and uh, philosophically correct person in the film, and she gets yeah. murdered halfway through. So you know, Joe Dante. I was when I was doing some research on this. There was something where he was asked why he didn't make a political episode for his second entry in uh, in Masters of Horror because his first one is overtly political, and he's like. And there was some interview, I think it was in Entertainment Weekly, that said, oh, why did you decide not to, to take a political angle with this – with your second episode? And he was like, no, this one is also political. The fact yeah, that that still be- don't get that like talking about gender stuff is highly political and I hope in the Trump age now people see that like literally any gain that a woman can make in America can be swept away by a group of white – male straight assholes and all all the power that di- or the the vast majority of the power dynamics are also those same men who are like the people protected like where do you run to it's it's the old horror trope right like it's like you you run for the police and find out that the police are working with the with the killers or whatever else and so it's like oh no i just ran to my like there's no one to run to anymore because everyone's a monster. Well, guess what? Like, that is the real world, too. Like, there's a reason why, like, reporting the cases are just as, like, dangerous for women as, like, anything else. Because all so many of the judges and the police officers and the chief of polices and the media, the people behind media are, are all people who – just like the men in this movie who, like, I don't want this coming back on me, are not there to literally protect people that have been uh, harmed, but instead to, to like, weirdly, like, protect themselves in the hypothetical. And as such, like, there historically hasn't been a place to run to. And one of the good things about social media has been 
you know, a long overdue Me Too and Time's Up of like, now there was a more direct way to get that message across. But I mean, as anyone can see, it's still having some very, um, I mean, it's still, it's still hurting people's career and livelihood and God knows they're getting um, horrific threats on a daily basis for just trying to uh, tell the truth and bring some justice into the world. So, and it's um, it, so I really love the the scene where they're pitching to the government because well, a it's really poorly done. It it's, it's it yeah. shows you what would happen when two people. Uh, it's it's ter- it's terribly it's terribly made. It's not good, but it shows you what happens when two people will be like, "Hey, these are the solutions for how we fix uh, male violence against women." Uh, here, here are all of our solutions for for them. Uh, you're not going to like them, but here they are. And then everybody in the room is like, "Yeah, they're terrible," and we're not even humoring them. Yeah, no, um, sorry, this affects me. And it shows you how, like, it, it unintentionally, unintentionally shows you how, like, bad dialogue can scuttle your point and lead to like a larger set of misunderstandings and it's and it's not saying like oh you you feminists have been having a bad dialogue it's saying like we have to have these conversations and we have to have them now about why we are so tolerant of male privilege and male violence there's a really great quote in the first few minutes of this where the cop so it opens with a you know a man murdering his family basically and pretending like it's nothing and the cops come and drag him off and one of the male cops goes poor old joe not his poor family mother daughter wife three women not his poor family poor old joe like he just lost it yeah that kind that is that is joe dante being politically fiery in a way that like i think still speaks to us today even though the execution of this was gravely limited by the budget and the time yeah, I would love for uh, this to be remade. Oh, uh, now, yes. to, you know, make make a make a Bloomhouse picture with uh, with a female writer, director, all that kind of stuff. Because, and this would feel if you didn't know, if you you do that and you make this movie, I'm sure you're going to have a ton of people who are like, who don't know it's you know based on a short story, don't know the Masters of Horror episode, that think this was made specifically as a reflection of our own time right now. And again, as we talk about this a lot with with some of the movies we return to, it's like, oh, it's depressing that this short story from uh, 1977 and a Masters of Horror episode from 2004 feels like it was Law and Order ripped out of today's headlines. So it's it's kind of a not fun watch, but it's it's a, a really fascinating uh, you know allegory. I hope. Someone makes a, a bigger version of it. Yeah, I agree. It's a it's a really interesting concept. I probably should just read the original work instead of endorsing this. But oh, I'm a hundred percent gonna find. Like I, I, I didn't know yeah. I didn't know it was based on a short story either. And I had seen it um, when it came out, and uh, I was like, oh shit, this sounds amazing. I would love to see it without some of the baggage that this one has with uh, uh, Jason Priestley emoting. Stick yeah. to stick to directing bare naked ladies videos, Jason. <laughs> That's a fact I know. Stick to being five foot tall, Jason Priestley. Um, oh, he's five ha- foot tall. He's very short. He's not actually five foot tall. Uh, I don't want to get sued. Um, 
But ha- there's there's well, one I moment that I want to highlight before we move on. Yeah, which we is, have to move on though. But we have to move on. Uh, one character says, "Have you ever seen an angel, Sergeant? The way that they view aliens as angels and they contextualize all that stuff feels strictly American." And like you were saying, I would love for an American woman to come in, grab this, and talk about violence in America, particularly how domestic violence and gun violence pair together because this movie is a lot about men just being effortlessly able to murder women because they have access to weapons and use religion as an excuse to why and yes yeah yeah there's so much here it's just you you have to get over some very like glaring stuff it's kind of like it's, it's it's like watching a uh, seeing a beautiful painting while someone's like shining a flashlight in your eyes. Like you kind of have to ignore some pretty pretty obvious distraction to be like, oh, this is gorgeous. Yes, but it does make me like, even though it's kind of a failure as a horror film, um, it does make me like Joe Dante more because his heart is in the right place. The messaging is all pretty compelling still 10 years later the way they have the islamophobia thing is a little much because they say raghead like nine times but the the he was anticipating that islamophobia would be used as a way to um walk around our own misogyny he's like oh you think yeah. women are treated bad here why don't you look over in the in the middle east like that i think of- we i think we did a good job for them here <laughs> again once again as as the man they should be pretty happy. God. And the, the that whole angle on it is just yeah. – it's really compelling. Um, but yeah, it's, it's only it's, – this is only to be watched if you really want to kind of see an adaptation of something that I don't think anybody is going to work up in the near future. They should. It's, uh, it's fantastic. Um, but let's move on to another political – track that is uh what's what's heavier than uh when heavy-handed what weighs more than that Uh, (laughs) it's iron fisted yeah it is it is like oh it went through like cartoon style for floors because the floor couldn't support how heavy it was let's talk about joe dante's homecoming Maybe we did. Maybe we didn't. Coming uh, home. Don't welcome anybody I'm back. I'm coming home. Don't welcome anybody back. Remember during heavyweights, we talked about this. Yeah, we that was. Come back. That was. Come back. Peter. <laughs> I can't remember what happened two whole months ago. <laughs> and heavyweights talked about this. We come back and we say, we're still fat. Hey, we're Here's here. To watch. <laughs> yeah. See, still, still watching. Still loving it. Da, 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 da. I'm loving it. We're watching I'm watching it. it. I'm watching it. All right. So, uh, so yeah, Joe Dante's Homecoming. Now, let me do uh, a so little recappy. Do a little, do a little recappy. So this one has a slightly higher budget, but this one opens with a, a sort of cold open style thing. Um, two people, a blonde woman and a brown haired man are driving down a highway and they um, are stopped Two people, a brown-haired woman. We we, we got to go quicker than this for the recap. Woman, are, are driving down the highway. What color are they? Hit a guy, they hit a guy. They hit a guy uh, who is a zombie. They 
sort of pull over on the side of the road and then a truck pulls up and more zombies get out and they start being attacked and at uh, the brown haired guy is feeling a lot of guilt the blonde haired woman is like no fuck that she pulls out a shotgun starts shooting at the zombies even though they're not dying and he uh executes her then jumps back what is it four weeks yep and these are basically two political pundits dash uh campaign strategy people uh who work for the bush administration i don't want to be i don't want to hedge any anything here they hold on do you think hold on do you think that this is based on a real president because i didn't know if i got i thought it was more just a general (laughs) they literally they never say bush but her license plate is like bush bsh voter or something it's it's basically like they show like the convention too where it's like he's talking like and they're they're describing about how like everyone thinks he's dumb but it is uh you think they could have said bush because it's just like no a different one who who would not take this as like a direct whatever i mean it is it is extremely extremely direct and also she is clearly supposed to be ann coulter and Ann Coulter, and then later she still stands in for like a Tommy Warren or any of those other fucking morons. The sort yeah. of sort of people, or, or the Dana Loesch, like any sort of any sort of person that's willing to go on TV and sell out their own class of people for spotlight. Well, also uh, like it's the it's the very extreme side of the right. So one thing this movie does that I really like, not to not to interrupt the plot, is that. It constantly shows like how every in all the information we're getting is filtered through like a version of Fox News. So you have like the host who is still like hosting, but has a lot of digs about laughs and kind of frames everything in a certain way that supports the president. And then you have the guy that works for the Bush administration who is like he's still spreading his lies and he's still trying to sell stuff. But like, you know, he's not like full like full and Coulter where just saying offensive things, even though he like is tacitly supporting all those offensive things. And then you have like the Ann Coulter who's like, I just think Muslims are bad. And, <laughs> you know, like where there there is no subtext. It's just all text. Yes. Um, they're horrific people that basically – Inform the actual administration, we see very quickly that there's a line that the main character has about, you know, I wish that all all the soldiers could come back and I bet you they'd say, we should be fighting the Iraq war. Yeah. And then Bush takes it, puts it in a stump speech, but that has sort of created a, he puts a curse on himself, um, which is a very Tales from the Crypt style thing. Also worth noting, like, that was a hundred percent, again- the, the Iraq War happened when I was in college, and I w- this was kind of like where I went from like politically complacent to like whatever they're all the same to like very like politically active uh, and engaged. Uh, so like there was a lot of that. Uh, the soldiers are like happy to die in service of freedom, which was you know, which is I mean they're not again. This is not this is barely a satire. This is just like what if everything was exactly how it is now, but then. Uh, the Bush administration got their wish and they could tell Bush what they really think of it. Yes. And it creates a curse that makes the dead soldiers from that died in Iraq 
come back to life. And what's interesting about that is while this is happening, the uh, the two admin guys, the Ann Coulter type and the the, the hacky brown hair guy, are are admitting that all of these are lies. Everybody is the Carl Rove stand in is also admitting that these are lies. Like he's saying, like we sent people out to the desert on a fucking lie. Obviously, we did that. Like everybody, and it's and it's actually way more compelling, especially in 2018, because you now that we have Trump, who's such a c- clear liar, like. Bush could at least pass for somebody who got duped by Cheney. He wasn't. Bush clearly knew what he was doing and was which this which this evil. movie comments on too because it is like no, he knows what he's doing. Yes, he just um, is good at making stupid people think they're smart when they are around him by yes. the way he talks. Yes, but Trump is like such a terrible liar and so obvious in his lies and his hemming and hawing and his hypocrisy that like now we see like, yes, they're clearly liars. They lie to get sound bites and then the dumbest people, I don't want to hedge any anything here, the dumbest people on earth vote for him because they can't see past his clearly grifter sensibilities at least bush had the common common decency to hide behind a stupid like idiot hide behind plausible deniability so these people know they're lying it's part of the plot um and they know that it's all spin it's all political spin they're smart enough to know better is is part of the reason that it works as a tales from the crypt thing because these people get particularly our protagonist gets he gets pangs of conscience and he works through them (laughs) And the dead start rising from the earth. They're actually what's interesting about them is they are peaceful. Yeah, they never and try to. Ki- they never try to kill anyone. They, uh, they never just... try to kill any people until they're basically cornered. And they well, more than that, they don't try to kill anyone until yeah, well, cornered and tortured, and then when um, they dishonor them. Yes, yes. So they're they're not normal zombies. They're also you shoot them in the head, nothing happens. The, but the way you kill them is you let them vote. Yeah. And so at final, first, you, you you get your wish. You yes. wish for them to be able to do this. Wish granted. And at first, they believe the the political people believe their own bullshit, and they say, "Well, yeah, fine. You know, let them vote. Anybody should be able to vote." And then as soon as it starts to come out that all the soldiers are voting against Bush because they hate the Iraq War, they said, "We'll vote for." Anybody that ends the Iraq war. The Ann Coulter types spin it. And they say, uh, I've always stand for the rule of law, but these are dead people. So clearly they can't actually vote. Like she pretends like she didn't say what she said two days earlier. And yeah. that, there's is, a that little, is. Well, there's a lot of like stuff that has clear, clear, unfortunate analogies to like. Um, yes. This is uh, well, not only that, not only, relevant. Yeah, not only that, like that idea of like you could sit on TV one day and say like, let them vote, they're American heroes. And then when you find out they're not voting for you, the next day it's, uh, are you talking about, are you saying they're, they're not even undead? They're basically deceased. Yeah. Deceased people can't, like the way that they can spin on a dime and we don't see anyone like call. I mean, that's the thing. Like, pundits can say whatever the fuck they want. No one holds them to anything. So, the fact that, like, hypocrisy is, like, a thing that doesn't even exist anymore in this country. Um, yes. Yeah. And, he, and then yeah. there's the flip side of it. Sorry. Where we're post-truth. We're also, at no point do any of these people, like, they literally have a sign, like, a, an, a sign, not from God necessarily, but, like, this, like, hey, the dead have come back to life to oppose what you're doing. And not one of these characters besides John Tenney 
Like, not the Ann Coulter standing, not the Cheney Carl Rove standing with Robert Picardo, who's the best part of this movie. Not one of them goes, hey, maybe we're off base. It, all they do instead is just double down. And, like, they don't even take in that, that side of, like, holy shit, we're getting a pretty big sign that maybe we've made a mistake here. They it, Like, it doesn't even phase them. And that feels like... The same thing now. Like I honestly, if if we were, if tomorrow we were in a nuclear war with some country because Trump uh, didn't like like Justin Trudeau or something, Trumpies wouldn't go. Holy shit! Half of the people I know are dead. This has gone way too far. They'd be like, "Yes, finally, someone doing something about Canada." Yes, like this is worth it for the co- like. That's so. Both of those parts. The idea that like. They they have to hold to no actual true belief publicly and no one cares. But also the fact that like nothing, not even the dead rising from the grave are going to um, shake a lot of these people out of like what they've decided is true. Yeah, it's 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 wonderful because it what we talked about with Screwfly Solution in this holds. But the big thing is genre is really awesome. The best thing that genre does is it takes current social issues and it blows them up to this big sort of like quantifiable size. Yeah. And it lets you sort of wrangle with issues because they're big enough to deal with. They don't, nothing seems too small. And what's fun about it is it it also sort of breaks people's thought patterns because it's no longer in the parlance of typical political conversation. So people can engage with issues sort of piecemeal. And I love that genre has that ability. Screwflesh Solution is, is something similar where a guy could watch it and be like, it sucks that all these men are murdering women. And then women could be like, hey, look at these statistics. Men are murdering a lot of women. Not yeah. on the scale, but, you know, take a look. With this, it's the same thing where it's like this political satire is actually really great for because by blowing it up so big, yes, it's very obvious. And yes, it does borderline on being war ink or any of those fucking terrible, terrible mid-2000s like liberal satires of, of the Bush administration. It, this could have been – Yeah, the Iraq war did not have a lot of great art associated with it the same way no. like Vietnam eventually did. But I, I just think there was such a – war ink is a really great example of a lot of talented people making a terrible movie for like a good reason. But I think it was just like – you know, remembering it, and and you were probably a little young, but you were, I don't know, I don't know where. But I might it, have been a PYT. It was just, oh, you were definitely a young thing. Um, <laughs> but I don't think you were necessarily pokey. <laughs> uh, so dumb. I could think of another P word that would like POTUS. No, a Peter Young maybe. thing. Yeah, exactly, Peter Young. Well, uh, anyway, so uh, yeah, it. There was such, like, an impotent anger that I think it caused a lot of – like, a lot of the best Vietnam stuff was made, like, post-Vietnam when there was, like, some reflection a little bit. And I think then kind of, like, coming to grips with, like, how shitty the war was from, like, a little bit of distance um, helped make, like, better movies and TV shows about it. Um, the music was really good. Uh, or some of it was. The stuff that survived that we still listen to today. Yeah. I'm like sure- – even like Connor Oberst made a couple good anti-Bush songs. Oh yeah, I was talking about the Vietnam era, but you're right. Like, I know, was, I know. There was, you're right. There was a lot of good music. Um, oh yeah, the um, if the president talks to God, and yeah, some of that stuff was really good. But like, it just the Iraq War went on for so long and is still going. 
like the Energizer Bunny, that there was like this impotent rage that why can't we stop this? And one of the ways the movie is dated and quaint, and I'm going to say probably the saddest thing I've ever said on the show, is it takes place at a time when this country uh, cared that uh, soldiers were dying overseas, which is what the whole movie is like based on, is like the fact that it was kind of recognized that everyone was talking about the American death toll. Now, obviously, no one was talking about the millions of Iraqis that that died, but like, and that was and has been the biggest issue of that war. But like, that's what people were talking about was like, what the fuck is the point of this war when uh, every month, a hundred more Americans died? Uh, and like every day, the front page of paper, it was like hit a thousand, hit fifteen hundred dead soldiers, hit two thousand. What is going on? Why is it worth this? And that was like what helped drive the frustration against the war and everything that kind of came uh, to a head in like the 2006 election and then the 2008 election. Uh, now, that is the most dated part of this movie. I, I, I don't know how many people died overseas last year. I don't know if it was higher or lower than the previous years because no one, like I could find out probably and that's on me that I don't know that, but uh, it literally, like the news got bored with it. The I wars went so, on so yes. long. I want go ahead. Our our outrage can only last so long, which is uh, where it just became normal now. We, yeah, yeah, we've been at war with Afghanistan for seven uh, seventeen years now. Like at least our, the lo- our fucking Vietnam freaking out lasted like long enough to actually drive us out of the war. Like now it's like tweets. Like there's there's not as many anti war rallies. Like. Also, like, I got to – okay, so so at the beginning – at one point in this movie, somebody basically, the Ann Coulter type, whatever, basically cast shade on a Gold Star family. Yeah. Literally something Trump did because the Gold Star family person didn't support him. He could what? not handle the idea – he could not handle the idea that a Gold Star family wouldn't support him and, and yeah, treat so he him just, like trash. So, I mean – and that happened with Bush too. Bush ignored it, which was its own fervor, and Trump – does what he does with anything that opposes him, which is try to destroy it. Yes. And so Obama obviously dealt with the deaths in the war on terror much better. He wrote a lot of letters. He was very well spoken about at these these deaths. Whenever a big event would happen, you could tell it was clearly tearing him up. But I do have a bit of a reservation about like how Obama getting into office, I think, made a lot of liberals very complacent with the war on terror. Oh, some stuff. There was some stuff like, yes, we pulled off. We backed off troop levels in Afghanistan for a time. And I think now they're back to old levels um, and we used more drones, but and smart bombs. But. That just meant that there was still the collateral damage on the field. It just meant there was less American lives lost, but we were still fighting two bullshit wars at once. Like I, I feel like Americans, I feel like liberals were so had to be so defensive of Obama just to like back up the great things that he did that they kind of like let this shit slide. So I think I think that this piece is very specific to a time and place because it's yeah. very it's very it does very much blame the Republicans for this stuff and I don't think that Dante anticipated that like a democrat could 
be in office for eight years and not fix the war. And not, and not, yeah, not, and not really end either of the war. Like, you're right. There was a reduction and I agreed, like, from, you know, my own man culpa, like, having Obama elected, having the Senate and the House no longer being controlled by Republicans felt like our own, like, mission accomplished banner, right? Yes. Well, we put up the sign and we said we did it. And then there was a little bit more about, like, there was there was definitely a lot of good stuff, especially especially in comparison. Like, you know, Obama did shitty stuff, but unfortunately, like, there's no perfect president, and I'm not excusing it. It's just he's the meat in like the worst fucking sandwich in in I I shouldn't say human history, the worst sandwich of my lifetime. Like, yeah, a little, little bit of Bush. Nixon was pretty bad too because he had Kissinger is is in the shotgun seat. Like, I mean, there's been a lot of bad presidents. You know, I I think I think you could make a convincing argument for like Bush and Trump and like Reagan being the worst, and all of them have been in my lifetime. So it, again, it depends what metrics. And this is kind of getting a little off topic, so I might delete this. <laughs> yeah, in but- terms of body count, Nixon, Bush, and well, Trump but Ke- have but I mean big Kennedy. Kennedy and Johnson, more I think more people died in the Vietnam War in those first like from nineteen sixty one to sixty eight than they did over the I, maybe that's incorrect, but Yeah. John Johnson has a lot of blood in his hand and I'm saying that Obama also has blood on his hands. Yeah. I don't say that to to do, you know, the both sides thing. I'm saying that this this makes this movie more interesting because it never anticipated the idea. That Obama could have taken office, a black well, man could have taken office, election, yes. right? And yes, it was before. I think that I think that everyone thought that Kerry was going to be able to to pull that one out, and then it just never happened because Kerry got trounced on was bullshit the, issues, and he and wasn't was the, on the least ground. exciting. Per- and he didn't. He <sighs> had the problem. I mean, he is like the atypical, or not the atypical. He's the typical version of like democrat where like he doesn't want to hit back and just trust that like clearly any sane man if you look between the two of us would pick myself over this and it's like it's still a fucking advertising campaign dumb dumb like you need to do more than just be like hey obviously right (laughs) like i am better at this than he would be and while that could be true while that's true when you're comparing to bush Got a little, have a little more icing on that cake there. Yeah, and I, so yeah, I, I basically my point also is ultimately some of the stuff doesn't matter to the actual movie. Yeah, because it, it it's more about the stubbornness of media pundits and people that make policy. Yep, um, and how their hypocrisy can actually change a country. Yep, and. How if they ever got called out on that hypocrisy, the world could be in a vastly different place. If that hypocrisy actually had to come to come to you to come to Jesus moment with your lies, they would crumble. And and I love I love that the movie is ultimately not even though it's very much like about Bush and about Bush's keepers. It is ultimately about how pundits spin truth to make dummies follow them and dummies follow them and this is a story this is a tales from the crypt style story about a pundit getting cursed for his own hubris well and it's also about how both the pundits and um and the policymakers are concerned more about winning 
than they are anything that they're saying or doing, right? That if you have a policy, you just you win that policy. And if you have a point to make against, you know, the 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 Democrats and liberals are the bad guys. So whatever they think, I think the opposite and I go on TV and I say that. That gets more and more ridiculous when the when the pivot point issue, the wedge issue is the dead coming back to life to say they don't like being killed in wars, but like everyone reacts the same way. And in in the last couple of years, especially, this was especially fantastical in 2003 and 2004. It was, you know, taking an issue and then like raising it up to its most ridiculousness to prove a point. This feels not all that far removed. Like, no, it doesn't. If, if it the doesn't. Dead, honestly, if the, at this point with the way Fox News has somehow gotten worse, if the dead rose and were like or, – or Jesus came back or anything else, they'd be like, George Soros and the zombie machine, like, uh, you know, it, it, there's, I don't think there's anything that could like change their direction. And for the one or two that pull a John Tenney and, and do, they would just be fired and replaced with someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, what happens to John Tenney? Yeah. He gets, he, he gets fired and he gets excited about it. He was like, finally someone did the right thing for me. And it's, it's a it's 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 a very interesting film. It's very it's much more snappy than Screwfy Solution. I think the budgets got reduced in season two. Season yeah, it, two is way cheaper looking. Yeah, I remember that. And Rob, I mean, we can talk about. It. And it also has a lot of the fun, like Joe Dante, Mad Scientist stuff, like Robert Picardo as the person who's doing all the experiments. And he doesn't like he doesn't care. He's like, yeah, we've been trying to re-kill him because we want an unkillable soldier. But also, like, they're supposed to be dead, so I just want to see what I can do. Like, he's great. Rob Picardo is uh, – he's a kind of an old Joe Dante mainstay. Main um, he's great at that comedy horror that Joe Dante is so good at. Yeah. Because he, he can he can do legitimately like get in your face and like scream at you but also like make a joke while he's there. He's really great at that. Yeah. And there was that part where like he starts shooting – like he's cut off all the arms and legs of that zombie to see if that kills him. And then he's talking to John Tenney and says, see? And like shoots him like – I'm doing a literally hand motion gun to indicate that he's shooting downward at this person uh, because I am tired. Uh, but he, um, you know, and he's like, see, yeah, look, they don't die again like they did the first time. And that is funny in how like flippant, like that's the equivalent of dark comedy, right? Like it's the situation itself is not funny, but um, the ridiculousness of it is Human reactions to yeah. it are, are funny. I mean, that's like the young Frankenstein kind of thing where like it's the way people react to insane stuff is is kind of where the, a lot of the jokes come from. Yeah. So it is – I mean, it, that is such a good moment. There's there's a lot of really, really good moments in this. But Joe Dante never seemed all that political of a filmmaker to me to when, I was a, when I was a little younger, you know? You know, Gremlins and Gremlins 2 and The Howling and Looney Tunes and all these, like, movies that I really liked. And I definitely, as I've talked about a lot this month probably, uh, talked about how much, like, his aesthetic and his style were so resonant with me. But, it, you know, it wasn't until, like, Homecoming and Screwfy Solution and then eventually, like, seeing the Second Civil War, like, 
Oh, yeah, he has a lot to say about the divisions in this country between Republican and Democrat, between like racist and not racist, between men and women. He does it very well in what you want from that kind of movie where he still, for the most part, makes really good movies. And he's not – he's rarely subtle, but for some reason for him – his whole thing is like being Looney Tunes asking over the top and not subtle. So he can make his political points not subtly and it still is incredibly enjoyable to watch, but also, you know, leaves you feeling sad or angry or whatever the message he's trying to convey is. I think that's perfect. The only thing I would add is that a lack of subtlety is the we love to watch brand. We love unsubtle things. We love when people just have the balls to say how they feel. And the and I feel like the idea of like burying some of your messages under subtext is like, yes, some movies should do that. Some movies should have these layered things where you can't quite figure out what it's saying. But like not everybody needs to be Paul Thomas Anderson. A lot of times you need to just fucking say how you feel like films are a form of expression expression does not necessarily need to be sort of guarded and vague expression can be obtuse and rough and in your face and it can be a hammer and it can have value if the way that it expresses that argument in a in a you know obtuse and big and unvague manner, it yeah. expresses that argument in an interesting way, and it is actually a good argument to have. Then hell yeah, like being clever is not automatically a good thing. You can it's a double edged sword. You can just be sometimes too clever uh, for your own good, and sometimes just saying the oh yeah, this war's dumb. And you know how they keep saying, like, the the dead soldiers would be happy with what they're doing for freedom? They wouldn't. And here's how I'm demonstrating that. Yes. I much prefer obtuse, big, broad, obvious satire to a something of similar level of quality, but is it's unclear which side it's standing on on the issue and and saying saying one obvious thing to let us know which direction to be looking in is like incredibly invaluable in this kind of stuff so i i yeah i think aaron you you summed it up pretty well i'm i'm satisfied with that as final thoughts perfect yeah we are this is a kind of a bonus episode uh you know it's fun to be able to revisit these and kind of do an off brand we've never really done a tv show but this masters of horror definitely seems like in a different world we would do like a a a 20 episode miniseries on all the master of horror or, or something like that. Uh, we're not going to do that because again, a lot of them are kind of a slog, but there are some really good ones out there. Uh, yeah. So that, that wraps up with a little bow that had a little dangling thread. Uh, our Joe Dante summer. Uh, thank you to everyone that um, voted in the poll and Joseph for winning the poll. And hopefully I've remembered to mail his gift by the time the final episode airs. Uh, so if you're listening, Joseph, hopefully you're enjoying your drawing of Spider-Man Homecoming and Ghostbusters 2016. Uh, and if not, just shoot me another text and be like, hey, what the fuck? Um so that uh, we'll definitely be doing jo- more Joe Dante movies in the future. I was so glad that this one won uh, because, as I mentioned many times, I'm pretty sure he is my favorite director. Uh, so that brings us to uh, next month, which is we'll 
we are recording this a little bit in advance, so we'll talk about guests and some other more the specific order uh, when you see an episode pop up next week in your in your iTunes feed. But we are doing uh, Man is the most dangerous game month, and we are doing Hard Target, Turkey Shoot, Battle Royale, and Targets. And actually, I do know all the guests, so fuck it. Let's I'll say the guests. I don't know what order it's going to be, but Dustin and Adam Koski are joining us for Targets. Bridget Taylor is joining us for Battle Royale, and good old Slick Rick Kelly, <laughs> back in the saddle, joining us to talk about Turkey Shoot. Um, fair warning, he chose that specifically because he found out it was an Australian accent, so you can look forward to a lot of, uh, good day, mates. <laughs> <laughs> and to you, tonight. G- good night, mate. <laughs> Good day, mates. Rise up when you're living on your knees. You rise up. Tell your brother that he's got to rise up. Tell your sister that she's got to rise up. When are these colonies going to rise up? 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 Rise up. I imagine death so much it feels more like a memory. Hey folks, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid, tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch. Or our website, WLTWpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, We don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, Tune in. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.